happens when one of your favorite characters in a movie or TV show does something wrong, makes a stupid decision, or lets you down? How do you react? Sometimes I'm prone to yell at the TV, cringe inwardly, close my eyes, or if I have the luxury, fast forward through the parts I don't like or that are too hard to watch. Harry, why did you keep letting Voldemort read your mind, even though you were warned against it? Frodo, why did you send Sam, your only true friend, away at such a crucial moment? Mr. Darcy, why did you try to keep Mr. Bingley and Jane apart? Being on the outside of stories, a spectator without control, especially with such imperfect characters, can be downright frustrating sometimes. To be honest, I have had similar can we please fast forward past this part moments this year reading about the disciples in the Gospel of Mark? I know that we give the disciples a hard time. They really are a great bunch of guys. But boy, do they have their fair share of embarrassing and shameful moments thus far in our journey through Mark. Let's do a a quick recap. In Mark 4, the disciples got really afraid that their boat was going to sink. Jesus essentially calls them cowards and asks them why they don't have faith. In Mark 7, the disciples find it hard to understand Jesus' teaching about what defiles a person. And when they ask for some clarification, Jesus gets frustrated and basically says, why don't you get it? In both the feeding of the four and five thousand, the disciples wanted Jesus to send away the hungry people and were surprised both times that Jesus was able to feed the crowds. And then, as we've talked about more recently, in Mark 9, the disciples were not able to cast out a demon-possessed boy brought to them. And they had to ask Jesus, why did we fail in this? And basically, it was because they didn't pray. Last week, TJ talked about how the disciples were arguing amongst themselves about who was the greatest. What are we supposed to make of the disciples in Mark? This inept, slow, and faithless bunch. What can we learn from them? Do they sound like anyone we know? Throughout Mark, the disciples are struggling to grasp what Jesus is teaching and how to participate in the kingdom that Jesus has brought. If we are honest with ourselves, I think we are more like the disciples than we would like to admit. We, too, struggle with understanding what Jesus is teaching us and what his kingdom is like. Let's pause a moment to pray 
before we open our scripture passage this morning. God, thank you for being present with us. Thank you for the stories that are found in the Gospels, which highlight your ministry and the work that you did on this earth. I pray that your spirit would come alive in this text, that we would be challenged, that we would be convicted, and that we would be led to be more and more like you. We love you. We are thankful. Amen. And so as I read this passage aloud, I want us to pay attention. This passage is really short. It's only four verses, but they're really powerful verses. And they have something to say to us today. Starting in verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. For truly, I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. In our scripture passage this morning, The disciples, again, behave in a way that makes me want to cringe and want to fast forward to the next passage. Why is John trying to stop someone who is using Jesus' name to cast out demons? Is John jealous that the foreign exorcist was able to cast out a demon because recently John and his disciples failed to cast out a demon? Are John and the disciples just confused and a little bit scared of something new happening and someone else using Jesus' name? Or is John simply being exclusive, believing only people in his group should cast out demons? Whatever John's true reasoning might be, Jesus does not stand for it. I can only imagine what Jesus must have been thinking at this moment. If I were Jesus, I would start to wonder, have you guys really been with me this whole time? How could you want to stop the work that I am doing? How could you think that I wouldn't let outsiders use my name? Haven't you been with me when I have cast out demons, healed the sick, touched lepers, raised the dead, ate with tax collectors and sinners, cared for people even on the Sabbath, taught in parables about the kingdom of God, predicted my death, and continued to fight against Satan's evil spirits at every turn. Haven't I been clear since the beginning about what my mission is? The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. 
Don't you know that the kingdom is at hand? The situation is urgent. That I want all people of peace with us on our side. This is the inner dialogue I imagine might have been going on in Jesus' head when he first heard John's statement. In verse 39, Jesus responds to John in a pretty straightforward fashion. Don't stop him. The reason Jesus gives. For no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Jesus' answer is very practical. Those who call on the power of his name won't easily be able to switch sides. They won't be able to speak evil of Jesus after using his name. Verse 40 goes even farther. Jesus throws open the gates. Whoever is not against us is for us. Jesus is keeping the bigger picture in mind. If the kingdom truly is in breaking into the world, if the battle against Satan is being waged, and if persecution is imminent, then even those who are simply not against Jesus can be considered to be for him. Jesus' hospitality, generosity, and inclusiveness is expansive, and it's overwhelming. Jesus anticipates that his disciples and any who follow him will experience grave persecution, and that in many areas they will be despised and killed. In a context like this, even a small thing like a cup of water given to someone bearing the name of Christ should deserve a reward. Jesus knows that the principalities and powers are at work to shut down his mission, to rule and to reign as king. They want to prevent him from his plan to defeat death. They want to halt the wholeness, healing, and redemption that he is bringing. So Jesus welcomes cups of water. He welcomes foreign exorcists. And he welcomes even those who are not explicitly against him. The disciples, as per usual, seem to be blind to the urgency of the situation, to the reality of God's inbreaking kingdom, and to the fearless inclusivity that Jesus operates out of. They are more concerned about being great, about preserving their in-group, and in some ways are guided more by their fear than their faith. Aren't we, at times, much like the disciples, unable to recognize what God is up to, so easily distracted by our fear and our desire to control who does what in the name of Jesus? That someone watching from the outside or rather, Jesus watching from the outside, 
might exclaim in frustration, why don't they get it? Why are they being so slow? Why are they wasting time arguing with their Christian brothers and sisters about baptism and communion when people are hungry and prisons need reform? Why are they acting superior to conservative Christians or superior to moderate Christians or superior to liberal Christians because of what they believe about sexuality when they could all be partnering on ways to serve the poor? Why are they so scared to join with people of other faiths in caring for refugees and immigrants? Jesus might think, can we fast forward past this part, please? Why don't they get it? Can't they see that all of creation is literally groaning for the power of my name? Like in Jesus' day, we are in desperate need for all hands on deck in need for the power of Jesus' name to be used by anyone who is willing. Jesus' kingdom has come, but we are still waiting for its fullness to arrive. There is such unimaginable suffering that still exists, pockets of darkness needing a burst of light, hearts hardened in need of forgiveness, People in addiction in need of freedom, broken bodies in need of healing, and demons needing to be cast out. As we have seen throughout Jesus' ministry, the disciples were a troubled bunch. But then, something changed for them. They encountered the risen Jesus And at Pentecost, they experienced the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They went from bumbling, lost, and prideful disciples to courageous, strong, and faithful pillars of the early church. Open to the boundary-breaking work of God in their midst. As disciples today who have the same access to this boundary-breaking God through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, we too can begin to overcome our propensity to fear those who are not like us, who are using Jesus' name. Who are the outsiders that we are afraid of? Who are the people that we are tempted to stop? Who are those people that we scoff to God about? Really, God, you're using them? If we are to make true headway in this area, to embrace a more inclusive practice, I think a call for repentance is in order. Repent of times when we have insisted that our way of doing things is the best. Repent of our pride 
which has caused us to be critical of others and made us blind to our own weaknesses and shortcomings. I know I need to repent of my need for control, my desire to keep God's work small and relegated only to my Christian group so that I can stay in charge. What might God be calling you to repent from? In what ways might God be asking you to expand your vision? How is he asking you to trust him? If we are to embrace Jesus' inclusive ethic, I think we need to pay better attention to God's cosmic story of redemption and the big picture of what he is up to in the world. In our time, God's spirit has been liberally, lavishly poured out upon all flesh. And Jesus is drawing the whole world and even creation back to himself. What are ways we can join in on the spirit's movement in unlikely places and through unlikely people? What person who we might have previously judged could we cheer on and encourage who is doing kingdom work in the name of Jesus? What congregation who we have strong theological disagreements with could we bless and pray for in their ministry to the poor? What group that we are so afraid of might God be calling us to partner with to do work for his kingdom in his name? My prayer is that we would be so concerned with participating in God's kingdom and announcing the good news of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has come into the world to bring healing and redemption, that we wouldn't have time to stop others from their work. The time is urgent. The kingdom is here. The battle continues. As was the case in Jesus' day, we are in desperate need of the powerful name of Jesus. And we echo the ethic of Jesus. Whoever is not against us is for us. Whoever wants to join us in this kingdom work, we shall let them come. Whoever wants to call on the power of Jesus' name, we say the kingdom is yours. As we take communion this morning, I want us to be reminded of the unifying power of this act. By partaking of this one body and one blood, we are made as one in Christ. We all come in desperate need to this one table, and Jesus is there welcoming us with open arms. When we take communion together, we recognize that it is only through his sacrifice that we are made whole. It is our great hunger and need to call on the name of Jesus that unites us. And it is our patient teacher and Lord and Savior who feeds us, who gives us his very body and blood 
and sends us back into the world to do his kingdom work. The table is open. Everyone is welcome. Let us come and feast. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.